The church is a family. If you've been around the church for more than a couple of years, you've probably heard that line before. And today we're going to spend the next 30 minutes talking about just how important this idea is. You see, in my experience, that line often gets misquoted, and people will say the church is like a family. But that's not the case. As beautiful as a metaphor as that idea is, the reality is even better. The church is a family. Now, this is usually where someone will insert a joke about a crazy uncle or an aunt with hair stuck in the 90s or about your annoying little brother. But let me paint a different picture. The scriptures talk about God as a loving father who adopts us as sons and daughters, inviting us to join his family and experience the blessings that come with it. While I was studying this past week, I thought about the incredible love and sacrifice my college roommate and his wife went through in adopting their son from Haiti. So I gave him a call, he spent a few minutes catching up together, and then he shared openly about some of the details and triumphs throughout the process. And he gave me permission to share with you just not to use his name. My friend and his wife had no problem getting pregnant. They actually came home from their honeymoon with a little bun in the oven. And a few years later, baby number two entered the world. But they never really felt like their family was complete. However, after two really difficult pregnancies, they didn't feel like a third pregnancy was really a good idea either. So they started seriously talking about the process of adoption. They learned about an organization out of Haiti that was supposed to be relatively easy to work with, a fair price, and able to adopt a child in a decent time frame. None of that turned out to be true. The entire process lasted almost five years to the day, was a colossal headache with all the red tape, and ended up costing about $50,000, nearly twice what they were told. And yet, as my friend was telling me the story, he spoke with joy and laughter in his voice. All the sacrifice was worth it, including the new blessings and challenges. Their adopted son, John, came to Canada at the age of four and needed to learn a whole new language and a whole new way of life. While he was taught a little bit of English in the orphanage, he didn't understand sentence structure, Canadian slang, or colloquialism, and wasn't used to the social norms that you and I just take for granted. My friend told me that one of the biggest challenges was John didn't know any of their family stories. The older two brothers would say things like, hey, remember last year when we went on vacation to BC together? Remember when we went to that family movie? Remember when we went to the water park? But John didn't know any of those stories. He was new to the family, and everything had to be explained to him, sometimes in painstaking detail. He was still learning the language. There was also the surprises of what triggered him. Imagine sitting down for family movie night and deciding you're going to watch the newest superhero movie with your three boys. But where the action that most of the family enjoyed is pure entertainment, the action for your new son brings up bad memories from home, and he just can't handle it. There were also some incredible blessings. Haiti is a very affectionate culture, and John regularly wants to snuggle, hold hands, and even rub his parents' back while they're sitting together. My friend has been able to connect with John's birth mom and has shared with her the love of Jesus, what John is doing, and is financially supporting her as she begins a brand new career. The more my friend shared about the adoption process, the more I saw the gospel shouting from the rooftop through the stories. And as you open up your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll take another look at that together. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can download a free version on your smartphone or tablet to follow along. The Bible can be a little bit of a tricky book to navigate. Thankfully, there's a table of contents. The book of 1 Peter is found near the end of the Bible. Big numbers are the chapter numbers. Small numbers are the verse numbers. The first half of chapter 2 
is looking at our new family identity and thinking about the parallels that take place between John's story and our own story. John's parents went through the incredible love and sacrifice to bring him home. God also shows us incredible love and sacrifice to bring us home. John is learning a new language, a new way of life as followers of Jesus. We too are learning what it means to be part of the family of God. John's parents are patiently explaining things to him. And sometimes people tease me for saying things like, the book of Peter can be found at the end of the Bible. Big numbers are the chapter numbers, small numbers are the verse numbers. But we do this because we have this hope that people will check us out and we want you to bring your friends to church and have them have a high degree of confidence that the preacher will speak in such a way that everybody can understand what's taking place. My friend is still learning what triggers his son and sets him off. Things that are totally normal to you and me can send this little guy running from the room. For those of us who didn't grow up in the church, we don't blink about when a Christians talk about their sexual ethic, their pro-life stance, or giving large amounts of money to the church. But we must recognize that not everyone thinks the same way. How do we speak? How do we act? How do we live in this new family identity? We begin by embracing the new life. This is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Simon Sinek is a British author and inspirational speaker. If you enjoy learning about leadership, he speaks at conferences regularly and gained international acclaim with his book, Start With Why. In his most recent book, The Infinite Game, he tells this great story of how he was invited to speak at Microsoft and at Apple only a short time apart. The next line is almost an exact quote. He said this, 70% of Microsoft executives spent about 70% of their presentation on how they could beat Apple. 100% of Apple executives spent 100% of their time talking about how they could help teachers better teach and help students better learn. The story gets even better. At the end of his time with Microsoft, they gave him a Zune. It was the MP3 player that was forecasted to take down the mighty iPod. The Zune did nearly everything better than iPod did, and the Microsoft executives were just thrilled with themselves at what they had created. Total side note, I remember this event clearly. The front page of my favorite tech magazine boasted that Microsoft's new Zune will take down the mighty Apple iPod. Someone uh, from the church I was working at at the time even gave it to me as a gift, but I never used it. It didn't work with iTunes. Back to Simon. He said that the Apple summit came to an end. He was going to test this theory. Did Apple really care all about teachers and students, or was there a little bit of a competition with Microsoft? And so he decided that he was going to try to get under the skin of one of the Apple executives. On the way back to the airport, he pulled out his brand new Zune and decided to stir the pot with this high-ranking employee. You know, this little Zune is so much better than your iPod Touch. How do you think that went over? I read Steve Jobs' biography last summer. I wouldn't expect very well. Instead, this Apple employee, without so much as the slightest bit of irritation, responded, I have no doubt. Conversation over. Microsoft is so obsessed with beating all the competition that this is their entire focus. 
yes, I'm sure Apple uh, absolutely wants to make money. I don't want to paint them as some altruistic company. But they want to make lives better. They want to make a dent in a universe. They're playing a different game. Friends, Peter is inviting us to play a different game, to embrace a brand new way of life. This isn't a competition to see whoever dies with the most toys wins. We don't step on the neck of our coworker just to get a little higher up the org chart. We aren't supposed to make friends by telling slanderous stories about other people. One of the ways we show love to our neighbor is by growing in holiness. Peter begins chapter 2 by listing a group of sins that are all aimed at harming others. Malice is about inflicting injury or harm because we feel a sense of hostility towards others. Deceit is actually a fishing term that means to bait the hook. Not surprising considering Peter's past profession as a fisherman. The idea of hypocrisy started in the theater where people would hide behind masks and the audience would never actually see the actor's face only the face they put on for the show. We slander people we hate or because we're envious. The whole point Peter is trying to make is to put away that old way of life. We have a new family identity. A better life is offered to us. For each person watching at home or listening to the podcast, something is drawing you to turn on this device. There's something that keeps you drawing back. And many of us have already experienced this incredible love and grace of Jesus and believe that because of his life, his death, and resurrection, we are brought into the family of God. This worship service with singing and prayer and teaching is just one way we regularly embrace this new life. Others of us are a little bit intrigued. We get a good feeling when we listen to the music. The teaching has hope filled within it. Much of the world seems to not have that same type of advice or joy. The people are friendly and happy when, and care about you deeply. There's something holistic that's good for your soul. Peter says in verse 2, like newborn infants long for that pure spiritual milk. My mother-in-law jokes that she didn't meet my middle child until his second birthday. <laughs> Whenever she would come to visit, mommy would be feeding him some milk and he was temporarily unavailable. My son was longing for that milk. Last week, David was preaching and it allowed for a little freedom in my schedule. For the first time in about a year and a half, I booked myself into a retreat center and spent some time with God. I had been waiting, longing for that day. I spent hours reading the scripture and praying, reading theology and praying, dreaming about what's next for our church and praying some more. I was there for eight hours and it was refreshing to my soul. It felt like a new person. No kids hunting me down for a snack, no meetings to attend to, no immediate decisions that needed to be made, just me and God. Some of you will resonate with a story like that. Others can't imagine why anyone would spend an entire day alone. So how do you embrace the new life? Do you need to have some worship music on YouTube before our service begins? Or you just soak in the music for a time without other distractions? You reflect on the words, on God's goodness, and the melody that draws throughout the music. Do you want to join a group of people and talk about God, the scriptures, and what's happening in your life? where a group can come together and point out the different aspects of God, his character, his grace, and how that impacts our lives. Do you love to read? 
and would like book recommendation or find ways to serve in the church and your community or listen to a great podcast while you go on a run. Taste and see that the Lord is good. A new life is waiting for you. So what happens after we embrace this new life? This next section may be a little bit difficult to understand, but let's get to work. This is about becoming a new temple, verses 4 to 8. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. The first three verses of chapter 2 act as a little bit of a transition. Last week, David invited us into a life of holiness by looking upwards toward God and outwards toward serving others. How do we do that? by embracing this new life God has to offer. Certainly, we don't harm others with our thoughts, our words, or actions, but rather we commit ourselves to knowing God better and serving our neighbor. This process of growing in holiness is the theological idea of sanctification. At the most basic level, it's very simple. Turn your back on sin and turn your face towards Jesus. Don't harm others or hurt your neighbor and place your focus on God and think more highly about him. This progression is stunningly beautiful. The idea of drinking the spiritual milk from verse 2 is to spend more time with God. The more time we spend with God, the stronger our foundation. The stronger our foundation, the more we can be built into a spiritual house. The more of us who build our spiritual house, the more we become a new temple. And the more we become a new temple the more we see and witness the glory of God. In our first two messages on 1 Peter, I mentioned how the book is written to mostly Gentile Christians. Remember, a Gentile is anyone who isn't a Jew. Yet this book is loaded with quotes and references to the Old Testament. And it got me thinking, well, why would Peter do that? This past week, everything clicked. Peter is writing to his original audience, and he's writing to you and to me. And he's saying, I want you to embrace your new family identity. I want you to recognize. I want you to understand that no longer are Gentiles outsiders. No longer are you the unwanted guests at the dinner party. You are now an integral part of God's plan. You are deeply loved. You have been adopted as sons and daughters by the Most High King. You belong here. Welcome home. This is incredibly significant, and here's why. In the first century, the Jews would go to the temple to worship. At the temple, there weren't one or two courtyards, but four. The innermost courtyard was the court of priests. This makes sense. There's priestly duties to attend to, and most people probably didn't even bat an eye. The second court was the court of Israel. Only the Jewish men could go there. The third court was the court of women, only for the Jewish women. And the fourth court, well, that was for other people. 
It was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. It was in this court that Gentiles, foreigners, aliens, unclean, the dregs of society were allowed to hang out. What Peter is saying is absolutely revolutionary. Forget the Jewish way of things. Forget the physical temple. Forget the courtyard. Forget the tears of society. You are being built as the temple of God. And as good as it sounds, it gets even better. Take a look at 2 verse 9. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people. For God's own possession. Time out. I thought Israel was God's chosen people. Way back at the beginning of the scripture, after God rescued the Israelites from slavery, um, back at the beginning of the Bible, the Jewish people walk across the floor of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army destroyed in the waters, and after God miraculously feeds the Israelites with bread from heaven, they end up at the foot of Mount Sinai. Do you know what happens next? In Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, God says to the sea of people, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be, wait for it, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, my treasured possession. Kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a treasured possession. The exact same words God spoke to Israel at Mount Sinai are the same words Peter said to the Gentiles, and the promise remains true for us today. Do you know what happened next on Mount Sinai all those years ago? The Israelites promised to follow God, and the glory of God falls down from heaven on his people. Peter is writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to you, and he's writing to me. And he says that same glory that fell down from heaven on God's chosen people is now available for us. Think about how incredible this promise is. When the church comes together, when the church covenants together, when the church worships together, God does something incredibly special. Can you meet God in personal Bible reading? Absolutely you can. But have you ever been in a small group or a worship service when a powerful word of God is spoken and it feels like you're all standing on holy ground? Can God meet you in personal worship while driving in your car or hiking on the mountain or going on a run? 100% he can. But there's something immensely powerful when a few hundred people gather together, lift their voices up in unified praise of a great and mighty king. I totally get that these are very strange times, and we can't meet together right now in the midst of a pandemic. But when this is over, when our nation is vaccinated, when we're open to 100% capacity, if you stay at home because it's simply more comfortable, you'll be missing the full experience of what it means to be a part of the temple of God. A number of years ago, I was living in a town of High River, which is about 20 minutes south of Calgary. And I would head into the city uh, at least once a week to play soccer, hang out with friends, whatever. And I was, as I was driving, I would always listen to my, the most recent sermon of my favorite preacher. I'd catch the first half of the message driving into the city, the second half of the message on my way home. He's a great preacher, and I learned a ton from him every week. 
After about a year of listening to him online, I heard the news that he would be coming to Calgary as the keynote speaker for a men's conference. So I quickly signed up with a couple of my friends, and we were all looking forward to what the weekend had in store. When the opening evening came, there was this buzz of excitement among the people. There was this anticipation, what is God going to do? And God didn't disappoint. Close to a thousand men singing their hearts out, praying together, wanting to be moved by God. And that preacher stood up and gave a truly powerful message, and the glory of God filled that place. I would be downplaying it to say 200 people went forward for the altar call. It was incredible. Lives were transformed that night, and God's glory comes when his people gather together. My friends, this is our new family identity called to become a new temple where all believers working together as living stones are being built together as a spiritual house for God. When Peter was writing to his original audience, the Romans truly had no idea what to do with Christians. They thought the Jews were a little bit weird, but at least they had some resemblance between Jews and the pagan religions. Zeus had a temple, Apollo had a temple, Jews had a temple. Zeus had priests, Apollo had priests, Jews, uh, <laughs> Zeus had priests. Zeus had sacrifices, Apollo, and so did the Jews have sacrifices. While Romans may have struggled with the Jewish morality and only um, this one God idea, at least the general structure could at least make a bit of sense. Christians were a different animal. Hey, Christians, where is your temple? We're the temple. Okay. Where are your priests? Well, we're the priests. That's strange. What about your sacrifices? Oh, Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, and you already killed him. Now we just make spiritual sacrifices. We believe Jesus is our cornerstone, the very foundation of which we stand, and we are completely surrendered to the word of God and the writing of the Holy Scriptures. In fact, we believe that there is gospel transformation for all who believe in Jesus, that are radically changed, it changes how we speak, how we think, how we act. This transformational gospel has led to a courageous community where people love one another, encourage one another, support one another. And as we give all of ourselves to all of God, it's led us to a life of generous worship where we recognize ourselves as stewards of our time, our talents, and our treasures, and giving all of them away freely. As we spur one another on, we find ourselves on this inescapable mission of telling the good news to others and inviting them to come and see the goodness of God. For some, Jesus is the rock of salvation. For others, a stumbling block of offense. If we are to embrace this new life, if we are going to embrace our new family identity, we must see ourselves becoming that new temple and the third point, living as new priests. This is verses 9 and 10. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In the Old Testament, the part of our scriptures that were written before the birth of Jesus, we regularly hear about three different roles or offices, prophets, priests, and kings. The role of the prophet is to bring God to the people, 
the role of the priest to bring people to God, the role of the king to bring God's rule and authority to the nations. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, we read about people who fulfill these roles. As you might expect, some of them do an incredible job and bring God glory. Others do a terrible job, and the people suffer. As we flip from the last page of the Old Testament to the first page of the New Testament, we are introduced to Jesus, who perfectly fulfills all three of these roles. Jesus is the perfect prophet because he is God in the flesh coming to the people. Jesus is the perfect priest because he is the one who saves us and brings us back into perfect relationship with God. Jesus is the perfect king who will rule forever on a heavenly throne and bring his perfect kingdom to earth. With verse 9 open in front of you, we read the word priest as it's staring at us right in the face. It's pretty direct. But what type of priest does Peter say that you are? A royal priest. A priest who is chosen to work for the king. My friends, this is our new life. This is our family identity. God has chosen you to be his royal priest to bring people to Jesus by showing how great the kingdom is. And I'll, get be- I'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. That covers kings and priests, but what about prophets? Still in verse 9. That you may proclaim his excellencies. Some of your translations may say something like, you might declare his praises. This is the role of prophet. How does a prophet bring God to the people? By talking to them. By telling them the word of the Lord. Peter is telling us that this is our new identity. Working for the king bringing the good news of God to the nations, and bringing the nations to God. Now, you might be listening to this at home or while you're cooking dinner or driving in your car. You might be thinking, yikes, I I, I don't know if I'm cut out for that. I, I don't know if I can do any of those things. Oh, don't be confused. This isn't your choice. <laughs> Again, look at verse 9. You were chosen. God looks at you and says, Adopted. Chosen. I want her. He can be on my team. Welcome to your new family. Welcome to a kingdom of priests. Welcome home. Let's spend a couple minutes talking about what that looks like. There's 168 hours in a week. Our worship service, about an hour in length. Let's say you spend time serving somewhere. You're in a small group or a triad. Let's say three hours total. For some of you, There'll be a little bit more than that, some of you a little bit less. But let's call it three hours. What do you do with the other 165 hours in your week? Even if you get a great night's sleep every night, jealous by the way, that still leaves you with well over 100 hours. So how are you living as a priest? How are you bringing the kingdom of God into your workplace, into your home? into your school. Dave, come on. You're the one in full-time ministry. You get paid to do this stuff, and you would be right. I'm in full-time ministry, and so are you. My job is to equip you to go into the world and to be priests for those other 165 hours. For the moms who are listening, happy Mother's Day. Moms, you are priests. 
And if you have school-aged children over the next two weeks who are doing online schooling, you are also elevated to saints. May God's blessing be upon you. In many cases, you are commissioned with the kingly role of bringing rule and authority to your home and bringing order out of chaos. You are often responsible for clothing your children, driving them to activities, and helping the home run smoothly. You are the prophet who reads Bible stories at bedtime, prays for your children throughout the day, listens and counsels your adult kids who need to talk, and remind them how they fit into God's bigger story. Moms, you are priests. You are saints. And we thank you for loving your kids. For my friends in the trades, do you realize the unique partnership you have with God? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, what? He created. You are building something where nothing existed. You are fixing that which is broken. You are restoring this world to the way it was intended to work. You are being priests, showing people the way of God by fulfilling your contracts, by being honest on your timesheets, and charging people a fair price. Interior designers. Wow, am I thankful for the work you do, because I'm terrible at it. You take a space, and you make it beautiful. You're given a room, a budget, and a time frame, and you help people see a glimpse of the beauty of God. Our medical professionals work with the divine healer to bring health and restoration to broken bodies. Our teachers help form and shape the minds of, of their students and to help them think more deeply. Our retirees look for opportunities to develop, maintain, or repair the world around them. In everything we do, we partner with God to see his kingdom grow. One more comment, and then I'll wrap up. As we embrace this new family identity, as we live into this priesthood, it's not just what we do, but it's how we do it. One of the ways we love our neighbors is by giving our best at our job, whatever it is we do for a living. When a farmer raises cattle, he's loving his neighbor by putting food on the table. When a sales rep sells hand sanitizer, he's loving his neighbor by keeping them safe. When a woman opens a dance studio, she loves her neighbor by teaching kids and beauty and art and culture. All of us are priests. All of us are doing it full time, and all of us are sharing the gospel. I close with verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This verse is a direct quote from Hosea chapter 2. And if you're not familiar with the book of Hosea, it's both incredibly sad and stunningly beautiful. God asked Hosea to marry a prostitute and start a family with her. The problem with marrying a prostitute is that she ended up getting pregnant from other men, and Hosea was not the genetic father. At one point, she has a little boy, and God says to Hosea, name him Loami, not mine. These kids, not my people. Another one of his kids he calls No Mercy. And even though Hosea loves his wife, she runs away to a toxic relationship where the man abuses her and sells her into slavery. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story. God says to Hosea, your wife, the prostitute, 
the one who cheated on you, the one who ran away, I want you to go and buy her back. I want you to go and purchase her out of slavery to once again be your wife. Those children who are not your people will become your people. Those who have not received mercy will now experience mercy. The unloved will become loved. Brothers and sisters, you have been chosen by a great and mighty king. At one point, we were not his people. We ran away. We did our own things. But because he loves us, he sent his one and only son on a rescue mission to buy us back. And it cost him his life. But whoever believes in Jesus has been adopted as sons and daughters. And while we were not his people, we have now become his people. We now have a new family identity. We're becoming a new temple, living into the new priesthood, and called to a resilient life in which we make Jesus famous. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of 1 Peter. Thank you for this incredible visual of being adopted, being chosen, being brought into relationship with you, that we are a new temple, we are new priests. So God, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might go into the world, whether it's our homes, our schools, our workplaces, or wherever you take us, sharing the good news of Jesus, bringing you into life, and making you famous. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.